everyone. Welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Maya, and I'm a third-year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Raven. Thanks, Maya, for the warm welcome. My name is Raven, and I'm also a third-year medical student at McMaster University. As always, this podcast reflects our own views and not necessarily those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that the Airwave podcast is not for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. In Diabetes Part 1, we discuss various end-organ complications of diabetes and their relevant anesthetic considerations. Today, we'll be discussing pharmacology and three life-threatening emergencies in diabetes. Finally, we'll end off with a few clinical cases to apply what we've learned. There are a lot of drugs you may encounter when caring for patients with diabetes. Patients with type 2 diabetes may be on a variety of pharmacologic agents with different mechanisms of action. Patients with type 1 diabetes and advanced type 2 diabetes are generally insulin-dependent and may be on different types of insulin. While this may seem daunting, have no fear. We'll do our best to break down the pharmacology into digestible bits. As we talk about each class of medications, we'll also include the perioperative management of this medication, which is important for you as the anesthesiologist. Let's start with metformin. This is a first-line agent for type 2 diabetes that you will commonly encounter. Metformin is a biguanide. It inhibits hepatic glucose production and increases insulin sensitivity. One adverse effect of note is the risk of lactic acidosis, particularly in patients with chronic kidney disease. This medication may or may not be held the morning of surgery, depending on the patient's renal function and the type of surgery. Generally, for minor surgeries, metformin can be continued, while for major surgery, it can be held the day of. This also will depend on institutional preferences. The SGLT2 inhibitors, which end with the suffix gliflozin, include medications such as canagliflozin and impagliflozin. These medications inhibit the sodium glucose cotransporter 2 in the proximal tubule of the kidney, promoting glucose excretion and lowering blood glucose levels. There have been some reports of normoglycemic ketoacidosis, wow, that's a mouthful, in patients taking these medications. Normoglycemic ketoacidosis? That sounds familiar. Is it related to diabetic ketoacidosis? That's right. Like DKA, normal glycemic ketoacidosis is a medical emergency. Unlike DKA, the patient's blood glucose levels are normal, which makes it trickier to detect. The cause of this condition is possibly due to a combination of decreased insulin levels, increased counter-regulatory hormones such as glucagon, and hypovolemia. The risk of ketoacidosis is increased during fasting. The recommendation is to hold SGLT2 inhibitors for three to four days before surgery. Normal glycemic ketoacidosis is also commonly referred to as euglycemic DKA. The glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, agonists have the suffix glutide, such as liraglutide and semaglutide. GLP-1 is an endogenous incretin that promotes insulin release from the pancreas after a meal. GLP-1 agonists mimic the action of this hormone. You may have heard of a new drug called Ozempic, a form of semaglutide which has become a popular medication for weight loss. The dosing for this purpose tends to be higher than for diabetes management and can cause delayed gastric emptying. Even with an appropriate fasting period, patients may still have residual gastric contents, increasing the risk of pulmonary aspiration. This is a relatively recent finding and it is still uncertain as to what the appropriate perioperative management is for those on medications like Ozempic. The drug has a seven-day half-life, which could require patients to stop taking medication long in advance of surgery. One thing is for sure, we must be extra cautious when caring for patients on these medications. 
A related class of medication to the GLP-1 agonists are the DPP-4 inhibitors, which have the suffix glyptin, such as citagliptin and linagliptin. These drugs inhibit DPP-4, an endogenous enzyme that breaks down GLP-1. The overall effect is prolongation of the action of GLP-1, and thus increased insulin secretion from the pancreas. Unlike GLP-1 agonists, DPP-4 inhibitors are generally continued the day of surgery. Next are the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, such as acarbose and miglitol. These agents, as in their name, inhibit the enzyme alpha-glucosidase, reducing intestinal glucose absorption. These medications are held the morning of surgery. Sulfonylureas and meglitinides are two classes of drugs with similar mechanisms of action. Sulfonylureas include medications such as glycoside and glyburide. Meglitinides include repaglitinide and nataglitinide. Both bind to ATP-sensitive potassium channels in pancreatic beta cells, increasing insulin release. Note that these drugs induce insulin release independent of circulating glucose levels, so they carry a greater risk of hypoglycemia than the other drug classes we've discussed. Both classes are, you guessed it, held the day of surgery. Finally, let's talk about insulin. Insulin is used for patients with insulin deficiency and can be divided into two main categories by duration of action, basal and prandial insulin. For context, the average non-diabetic adult patient naturally secretes about 40 units of insulin per day. Next time you have a patient with insulin-dependent diabetes, try to calculate their daily insulin requirements to see where they fall. Long-acting insulin includes insulin glargine, insulin detamir, and NPH insulin. Long-acting basal insulin is usually taken once or twice a day and is required to prevent diabetic ketoacidosis. Short-acting insulin includes regular insulin, insulin lispro, and insulin aspart. Prandial insulin is taken before meals to control the postprandial glucose spike. In the perioperative setting, prandial insulin is held because patients are fasting. Basal insulin is continued because it's important for patients to have enough insulin on board to prevent ketosis, but the dose is reduced by about 30 to 50%. Congratulations on getting through the pharmacology. That was a lot of information. Now we'll move on to something more exciting, diabetic emergencies. Today we'll be talking about diabetic ketoacidosis, hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, and hypoglycemia. DKA and HHS are two life-threatening conditions of extreme hyperglycemia. DKA tends to be more common in people with type 1 diabetes and is characterized by hyperglycemia and ketoacidosis, while HHS is more common in those with type 2 diabetes and characterized by a more severe hyperglycemia but no ketoacidosis. DKA can be triggered by surgical and perioperative stress, infections such as pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, or may be the first presentation of undiagnosed type 1 diabetes. It is often rapid onset over the course of a few hours. Signs and symptoms include confusion, polyuria, polydipsia, and dehydration. HHS is similarly often triggered by infection or may be due to inadequate or non-compliance with insulin treatment. Elderly patients are particularly vulnerable if they're unable to take in enough water, leading to dehydration. In contrast to DKA, HHS develops more slowly over the course of a few days. Signs and symptoms include polyuria, polydipsia, lethargy, and confusion. Ketoacidosis does not occur in HHS because there is enough basal insulin secretion in patients with type 2 diabetes to prevent ketone body formation. In both emergencies, hyperglycemia is a result of impaired glucose utilization, increased gluconeogenesis, and increased glycogenolysis. Hyperglycemia promotes osmotic diuresis and dehydration as glucose spills into the urine and water follows. 
In DKA, lipolysis and the production of ketone bodies such as beta-hydroxybutyric and acetoacetic acid cause an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Treatment of DKA and HHS are conceptually similar, aimed at reversing the underlying cause, correcting fluid and electrolyte abnormalities, and giving insulin. This involves fluid resuscitation with normal saline, administration of IV insulin, especially in DKA, adding dextrose to prevent hypoglycemia, and administering potassium. Checking blood gases can be informative and provide data on blood glucose, electrolytes, and the degree of acidosis. Hypoglycemia in patients with diabetes occurs as a result of excess insulin relative to carbohydrate intake and or physical activity. This occurs more frequently in patients with type 1 diabetes. It can be triggered by events such as missed meals, excessive exercise, or overcorrection of hyperglycemia, for example, taking too much insulin. Signs and symptoms reflect the brain's sensitivity to hypoglycemia, such as anxiety, lightheadedness, and confusion as well as the body's sympathetic response, such as tachycardia and diaphoresis. The treatment is simple, provide glucose, typically sugary drinks in an awake patient or IV 50% dextrose in an anesthetized or unconscious patient. As a final note, it's important to remember that anesthesiologists have a major role in optimizing patients with diabetes for surgery. This includes checking patients' blood sugars and hemoglobin A1c, conducting a history to evaluate for micro and macrovascular complications such as MI, stroke, and renal dysfunction, ensuring medication compliance, and counseling patients on perioperative use of their diabetes medications. In certain cases, such as if the patient will require an insulin infusion, you may check blood glucose intraoperatively as well. We normally target a capillary blood glucose of 5 to 10 millimoles per liter. You may need to cancel a case if the patient is not fit for surgery or change post-op disposition to monitored beds if required, depending on the urgency of surgery and the degree of disease control in unoptimized patients. And with that, let's jump into a few clinical cases. You've been assigned to pre-op clinic and you're seeing patients for anesthesia consults prior to elective surgery. Our first case is Mr. Jones a 62-year-old male with a history of hypertension, dyslipidemia, and type 2 diabetes, presenting for a laparoscopic right hemicolectomy. His medications include ramipril, rosuvastatin, metformin, empagliflozin, and semaglutide. What is the perioperative management for his diabetes medications? We have three different medications to sort out. We'll hold metformin on the day of surgery. Empagliflozin is an SGLT2 inhibitor, which is associated with normal glycemic ketoacidosis. We'll instruct Mr. Jones to hold this medication for three days before surgery. Semaglutide is a GLP-1 agonist. Remember, this is the class of medications associated with delayed gastric emptying, especially in formulations such as Ozempic, which have gained popularity to help with weight loss. Mr. Jones is taking semaglutide as a once-weekly injection. We'll discontinue this medication seven days before surgery. In case you were wondering about his other medications, ACE inhibitors such as Ramipril are held the day of surgery. Statins such as Rosuvastatin are continued the day of surgery as they are associated with reduced incidence of cardiovascular events in the perioperative period. Our second case is Ms. Lynn, a 34-year-old female with insulin-dependent type 1 diabetes presenting for a left knee arthroscopy. She takes insulin glargine once daily and Lispro with meals by injection. What is the perioperative management of her medications? Basal insulin, insulin glargine, should be continued to reduce the risk of ketosis during fasting, but the dose should be reduced by 30 to 50% and given the morning of surgery. Short-acting insulin, such as Lispro, should be held the day of surgery.
Our third and final case is Mr. Hyde, a 73-year-old male presenting for an elective knee arthroplasty. Medical history is significant for severe osteoarthritis, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. Medications include Tylenol, Metformin, Dapagliflozin, Perindopril, and Omeprazole. On review of systems, he tells you that he's been feeling rather tired lately and has been getting up three times per night to go to the bathroom, which is unusual for him. Mr. Hyde's wife, who has accompanied him to the appointment, pipes up that he hasn't been his usual self in the last few days and seems more confused. What are your next steps in management? Starting off, vitals are vital. You first take Mr. Hyde's vitals. His temperature is 37.1 degrees Celsius, his heart rate is 102, his breast rate is 16, and his oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. His blood pressure is 138 over 88 supine and 115 over 72 standing. On exam, he has a normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs and no extra heart sounds. His lungs are clear with equal breast sounds bilaterally and no adventitious sounds. His skin turgor, however, is abnormal and his mucous membranes are dry. Given Mr. Hyde's history of type 2 diabetes and several days of polyuria and increasing confusion, you are concerned about a hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. He also has physical exam findings concerning for dehydration and orthostatic changes. You decide it's best to postpone his case and send Mr. Hyde to the emergency department for further evaluation and treatment. Good work, everyone. Let's summarize what we've learned in this episode. First, we talked about the perioperative management of diabetes medications. Most oral hypoglycemics are held the day of surgery, including metformin, the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, sulfonylureas, and megalitonides. SGLT2 inhibitors are held for 3-4 to four days prior to surgery due to the risk of normal glycemic ketoacidosis. DPP-4 inhibitors may be continued until the day of surgery. Current evidence is unclear regarding the optimal perioperative management of GLP-1 agonists such as Ozempic, which pose an aspiration risk due to delayed gastric emptying, but have long half-lives which could require discontinuation weeks prior to surgery. Of note, the CAS recently released a medication safety bulletin about Ozempic management in the perioperative period. Feel free to check it out if you're interested. Finally, short-acting insulin is held the day of surgery, while basal insulin is continued at a reduced dose to prevent ketosis. We also cover diabetic emergencies, including diabetic ketoacidosis, hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, and hypoglycemia. Treatment of DKA and HHS include correction of fluid and electrolyte abnormalities and hyperglycemia with normal saline, insulin, dextrose, and potassium. The treatment of hypoglycemia is giving glucose, either orally or parentally. And that concludes this podcast episode. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you learned today to your clinical rotations. We would like to thank our content editors, Dr. Peru Panchal and Dr. Mohamed Sharaf Aldin, and a big thank you to Dr. Cordovani and Dr. Whippy for their continued support. Also, make sure to check out our new website on the McMaster Department of Anesthesia website, tweet at us on our Twitter page at Airwave Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Airwave Podcast for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.